toxic emotions such as fear, anxiety, frustration, and stress are often the symptoms of unbelief in who God really is. If those are things that you battle, it could be that you need to get a new God or at least a new perspective of him. Get ready to see God as he really is. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler, author of the book Shut Up Devil, creator of the Shut Up Devil app. I'm all about shutting down the lies and struggles that keep you from thriving in God's design for your life, and I'm here to do it every single week with a live online audience. So I'd love for you to join me and the rest of us live on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org live. At 13 years old, I believed I had discovered God's name, like his real name. I remember being in the kitchen of my parents' house when I made the announcement to my next door neighbor. I told her that I had uncovered a secret about God hidden in plain sight in scripture, but somehow missed by about everybody else. His name is Hallowed, I told her. She had no idea what I meant. And I said, you know, like in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I promise I did not just string you along to the punchline of a dad joke, though I have plenty of those. I really believed this back then, at least for a few days, because I read it on the internet. Of course, I believed a lot of wrong things about God back then, and his name was the least problematic of them. Far worse was my belief or my ignorance about his character and how he related with people. Yes, some of my misconceptions about God came from the internet and videos or articles that I read on the internet. I remember one website that offered booklets of cartoons that each told a story through them with the intention to draw people to the faith, although I don't think it was draw people. I think it was more scare people to the faith based on what they did. And those cartoons, God always looked like an angry old man, which pretty much fit with the bumper sticker they also sold on that website, which warned, Jesus is coming back, and boy, is he mad. For a while, I never thought anything of this angry God portrayal because it fit with what I already believed about him which was passed down to me by religion teachers and demonstrated to me through the stoic statues that lined the walls of my childhood church and promoted to me as the reason for natural disasters. Acts of God, they called them. Which I heard some preachers on TV say was God's wrath against certain people groups. So like I said, confusing his name was the least of my problems. What was devastating as I got older is that I saw God as a schizophrenic taskmaster who kept meticulous notes on everyone's behaviors. He loved me if I obeyed the rules and did my part in all the spiritual disciplines. But he had a short fuse that could ignite quickly if I did not prove that I was improving myself. Worse, I sometimes feared that he hated me strongly disliked me, at least, because of my imperfections. 
Now, since I've been in ministry for about a decade, I've since learned that many people today see God the way that I once did, for similar reasons as I once did. Sadly, what the Apostle Paul observed in the early days of the church is still true today. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.4. Paul says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of people so that they are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. And friends, that is both outside and inside of the church. Obviously, internet articles aren't any better today than they were 25 years ago when they deceived me about God's name. I'm sure you've come across plenty. I came across one a few months ago with a headline that blared, I propose we give up God. Just two sentences in, it was the same old, same old. The author used Old Testament references to say how awful God is to cause all the suffering in the world today. God gets blamed for everything. But I guess that's kind of been the situation since the beginning, practically, and we'll talk a little bit about that in just a few minutes. But not surprisingly, seeing God as the blame for everything based on Old Testament stuff tops the list of reasons why people become atheists. Ever heard of atheist Richard Dawkins? I'm bound to attract some of his devotees just by mentioning his name, but he wrote a book called The God Delusion in which he scoffed, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Dawkins calls God the flying spaghetti monster. Now, publicly, atheists like to cite science as the reason for their unbelief, but when you get them one-on-one, -on -one, like I said, it often comes down to how they see God in the Old Testament, which they then assume is how he is today. And sadly, many Christians don't do anything to help this misconception. In fact, some only further reinforce the view that God is a monster. I once lived in a town where a group of legalists took to street corners each Sunday to wave signs at people that said how God hates this or that kind of person. Of course, these kinds of legalistic demonstrations of God have contributed to the rise of atheism, but they are also part of a new thing taking over the church called the deconstruction movement. Ever heard of that? If you haven't, deconstruction is as it's basically defined. It's a breakdown of something when it comes to the faith. It's about unraveling long-held beliefs and doctrines, like rethinking it all and tearing it down, as I said. And that's not always bad, of course. You might think of this message as a kind of deconstruction. If your faith and view of God is built on lies, it's good to tear those down, as long as you rebuild with truth. The problem today is that many deconstruct their way out of belief entirely and give up God altogether, and that's tragic. Look, I know that many horrors have been and still are committed in God's name. I know that some Christians weaponize He and His Word to shame people who desperately need His good news. Trust me, I tremble over that. 
The answer, however, is not to give up God. It's to get a new God. Now, I know that most of you listening don't identify as someone unchurched or de-churched. The thought of giving up God probably never crossed your mind. But do you wrestle with giving up on yourself, on your dreams, on your worth? Do you battle insecurity, shame, fear, stress? These symptoms are often telltale signs of unbelief in God as he really is, even if it's only partially or out of ignorance. That's because what you believe about God affects everything in your life, from how you act, to how you talk, to how you see yourself. That's why the enemy is committed to keep people blinded to God's true character. If you've read my book, Shut Up Devil, then you've read my exploration of the devil's name. In Greek, it means slanderer. You know that to slander means to lie for the purpose of destroying someone's character. And this is just what the devil does in our minds. First, he attempts to destroy God's character, then yours. It might go something like this. Worry that God is holding out leads to distrust. The belief that God afflicts fans the flames of fear. The suspicion that God does not care develops depression. I could go on and on. So many of our most toxic emotions are the byproducts of an incorrect or incomplete answer to the question, who is God? So it's for this reason that even for committed Christians, the answer to many of life's issues is to get a new God, which is to say, get a new perspective of him, the right perspective of him. Okay, every few years, I like to tackle a year-long Bible reading plan. I don't do it every year. I'm always in the Word. Sometimes I concentrate on specific sections or books. But every few years, I like to go through a year-long reading plan. Nothing spiritual about my timeline or structure, but I begin on January 1st, and I go from front to back. No skipping around for me. My linear brain wouldn't allow that. If you follow a plan like mine, you will get to the New Testament sometime in October, if you make it until then. And I said if, because nine months in the Old Testament gets grueling and depressing quickly if you do not know how to see it properly. And for years, I didn't. I find that most people don't. Since the Old Testament makes up about 75% of the Bible, its depiction of God often makes up the majority of how people see him. And in it, let's be honest, God does not look all that great. There's no escaping that. But we should not build our conclusions about God's character based on the Old Testament either. That's because the Old Testament describes God incompletely. I know that is causing some of you to wonder. To be clear, I don't mean the Old Testament is, is, is inaccurate. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not attacking its validity or inspiration. 
I mean that God's character in the Old Testament is incomplete because it is clouded by the effects of sin and described by people who did not have the full picture of things. So as a result in it, we see a God who is largely wrathful and angry, responsible for both the good and the bad, and impossible to please. Some of this depiction is true. Some of it is not. Now, I know I'm going to have to explain that. Let me back myself out of the corner I just put myself in here. As we explored last week, in the 1,500 years after Adam and Eve first sinned, sin grew, it snowballed to levels that not only threatened the health of people, but the health of the world. The greater danger, though, was that sin threatened to destroy the people from whom ultimate redemption would come, which risked eternal separation from God for all humanity, and that wouldn't be prudent. So sin had to be restrained in radical ways until the time was right for its power to be taken away forever. A set of rules that were impossible to keep was one of God's methods to restrain sin. But what was not controlled with rules had to be consumed, sometimes in grand displays of wrath. That was never a pleasant sight, but to protect what was to come, it was necessary. True as God's anger burned towards sin at times, in the Old Testament, not every comment about God or interpretation of events is true. That's because, until almost 600 years before Jesus, scholars say that God's people did not know about Satan as an evil enemy who was independent of God. Back then, what they knew of Satan was that he was one of God's angels that God sent to serve one of his purposes. Directed always by God, did God's bidding. This is evident from the beginning in the story of Adam and Eve. They didn't really know that the devil was in the snake. That realization didn't come until the New Testament. They thought the serpent was a creature made by God to test them, Genesis 3.1. So understand that much of the Old Testament is written from the perspective that every trial and tragedy is sanctioned and sent by God. Now, is it true that the events described in the Old Testament happened? Absolutely. Did everyone in those days interpret them all correctly as God's hand? Absolutely not. The story of Job might be the best example. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but if you recall the story, in a series of tragedies, Job lost just about everything but his nagging wife. And about his losses, he said, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. You've heard that? Is it true that Job suffered great losses? Of course. Is Job's assertion that God gives and takes away true? Not entirely. Yes, God gives. He's always the giver of good things. They knew that back then. Thankfully, we still know that today. But Job misunderstood who takes as far as 
takes health and takes possessions and makes suffering. He assumed it was God, but thanks to the author who much later retold his story, we know it was the devil. Job never saw the devil in it. He always thought it was God. His friends even thought it was God's punishment, and God corrected them for maligning his character later. We know it was the devil. Now, I know that everything I said in the last few minutes there is a big idea. I encourage you to study it on your own, but at least consider it as you read the Old Testament. There's no doubt that many things you see in it are God's swift response to sin. Absolutely. But some of what you read is an incomplete description of God by people who did not have all the information. And mostly, when you read the Old Testament, keep in mind that you are not reading just a history book of facts. Yes, it is factual, but it's richer than that. The Old Testament is the inspired story of God's relationship with people. When you read it, you're peering into moments of discovery. Had God wanted us to know everything about here, his creation, he would have programmed us with all wisdom from the beginning, but he didn't. We progressively learn things. The root of evil is one of those things that we found out along our journey. We later found truths about natural causes of things like gravity and viruses and thunderstorms. And even in that stuff, we don't know everything. We're going to be discovering forever. But I think God enjoys watching us learn and celebrates our progress. I think the discovery excites him even though it means that he often gets blamed for things he shouldn't. More than learning about how creation works and all of that, though, God especially delights in our discovery of who he is. And he's always showing us more about himself. We can never be so naive to think that we've got God completely down, but one thing that he did make crystal clear about who he is like his entirety, his very essence, is in 1 John 4, 8. So simple. Three words. God is love. Now, God's people always knew that love is an attribute of God. Like they knew it was a quality of him. They knew that he did love. He could express love. But it took about 4,000 years for them to discover that love is his very essence, that love is who he is. But really, that was a rediscovery. It had just been forgotten. Look at John 1.14. This will show you what I mean here. John, the Apostle John, is talking about the creation, God at the beginning. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Unfailing love is what other translations call grace. They mean the same thing. And why would we expect anything less? God created us for grace. If you check out my message, The Divine Design, I explore how our bodies were designed for Eden, which is a place of grace. 
And grace is always the way he intended to relate to people before sin, and it is the way he continued to relate to people well after the first sin. Grace covered Adam and Eve's nakedness. Grace protected Cain after he killed his brother. Grace blessed Abraham and Sarah with a child despite their lack of faith. Grace kept God present with Moses through his constant doubts. And I could go on and on and on with more examples just from the first 20 chapters of Genesis. But there's another reality to consider here. In those days, sin did not repel God's presence as if it were more powerful. I know that's contrary to what many teach today. Surely you've heard somewhere that God can't be in the presence of sin. God can't hear through sin. You can't hear God through sin. All of that stuff. That it's this great block. Yet for many years, he was present and he talked and he heard like through and amid some of the worst things. Until God gave the law through Moses, he continued to be present among very imperfect people. That is because he chose. You know, he, he gets to do this. He gets to choose. He chose to relate with them according to his true nature of grace. Now, with the institution of the law, things changed. Starting with the Ten Commandments, and as I said last week, that's part of 613 laws that he gave through Moses. With the law, he began to hold people accountable for their sins. Last week, we explored the good reasons why. This didn't change his nature. It just changed how he related to people for a while and how people saw him. During this time, God was seen as more of a God of justice with occasional glimpses of grace. He continued to rescue Israel after their blatant acts of rebellion, though they were sometimes punished for those acts too. But it was never God's intention to relate to people with a split personality like this. That's why God provided them with clues to a future of pure grace. One of the most obvious came through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 57 verse 16. God says, for I will not fight against you forever. I will not always be angry. Okay, get ready for this next thing. This is going to blow your mind. The time had come for God to stop the clues. Galatians 4.4 4 says that this happened in the fullness of time. Prophecy was fulfilled. Humanity was ripe. God was about to do something world-changing. But to a couple named Elizabeth and Zechariah, things seemed pretty typical. Depressing, actually. They wanted a child but couldn't conceive. The best minds in their time said it was impossible. Which 
seemed unfair because the Bible says they were both from a line of priests and that they lived careful to obey the Lord's commands. I love how scripture actually emphasizes that. That was important to them. They were careful to obey the Lord's commands and regulations, it says. If anyone earned the blessing of a child, it was them they thought. But it wasn't happening. Until one day, in an instant, Zechariah received news that their devotion had paid off. The angel Gabriel appeared to him while he was working in the temple. We'll start in Luke 1.13. Gabriel says to Zechariah, Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. Now, I'm sure Zechariah was beside himself, but he was also confused. People told him it was impossible. So he said to the angel, how can this be? And that question rendered him speechless, literally. In verse 20, the angel says to him, Now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. Now, I know that seems like punishment, but stay with me. Something more was happening. You see, in those days, a firstborn child was traditionally named after the father. In fact, just after Elizabeth gave birth, the Bible mentions how friends and family came to town and wondered why they didn't name him Zechariah. Like good family members, they argued over things that were none of their business. Nothing's changed, has it? When Elizabeth wouldn't change her mind, they then turned to Zechariah, man of the house, what do you say? Remember, he couldn't speak. So, as you continue on through the story and you get to Luke 1, verse 63, Zechariah takes out a stone tablet and it says, to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. And with that, he could talk again. Now, here's where you're going to start jumping up and down. You have to remember that back then, a name was like a job description. It was prophetic of someone's destiny. And this is especially true of John. Because John means God is gracious. <laughs> Come on, this is good stuff. I'm not sure they all got the message back then, but we who have the whole story now, we can see it. Think about this. Both Elizabeth and Zechariah were pictures of law. They did everything that they were supposed to do. It wasn't working, though. They were unable to produce life on their own. Yet God filled their barren and hopeless womb with his life. And that life was the announcement that God is gracious. In the same way that law has always pointed to Jesus, that was its purpose, this did too. Now, if this were the only announcement of its kind, you might kind of brush it off as happenstance. But the messages kept coming, like faster and even more revealing. 
Nearly every feature of the Christmas story, from Bethlehem to the manger to the shepherds, is prophetic of what Jesus came to do. But one of my favorites is the angelic announcement at his birth. Born in a manger, unfailing love took on flesh. And when that happened, angels appeared to the group of shepherds and said, Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will toward men. The angels weren't talking about peace in a worldly sense. They weren't talking about no more tragedies and trials. Ultimately, what they were proclaiming was that God had come in the flesh to make a way for permanent peace between he and his people. And amazingly, just as God used John's name to announce the return of grace, he used John again, 30 years later, to elaborate on how it would happen. To begin his ministry, Jesus came to the Jordan River to be baptized by his cousin John. When their eyes met for the first time, John's spirit once again leapt inside of him and provoked a pent-up bellow that said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 Come on, there's, there's no coincidence in this stuff. Like peeling an onion. God led people through the ages on a journey to discover who he really is layer by layer. Some of us are still on that journey. So that can end right now. What God wants people to know is that he is not the mean, vindictive, jealous God characterized by those who did not or do not know the whole story. But God is gracious, full of unfailing love. Of course, it's one thing to hear God described in this way through announcements and prophecies. It's another to encounter His true character as it was demonstrated perfectly in the flesh as Jesus. The discovery will continue, and you'll see it next time. But for now, know that God is good, and because of Jesus, you are good with God. That's all you need to be convinced of. That's enough to end so many of your battles. Of course, the devil doesn't want you to know that. Remember earlier I said his name means slander. He's after God's character than yours. And lies are the ways he goes after them. I talk about that in depth in my book here, Shut Up Devil, Silencing the Ten Lies Behind Every Battle You Face. It's available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook wherever books are sold, or I'll send you a signed copy if you order it on my website at kylewinkler.org slash shutupdevil. In the book, not only do I reveal the sneaky ways the enemy enters your mind to slander both God and you, but I teach you how to shut down his top 10 mind games.
So again, order your signed copy on my website at kylewinkler.org slash shut up devil. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil show. Remember, God is good and he is for you. And we're here for you too every week on my website at kylewinkler.org on our podcast and wherever you get your social media. And don't forget, wherever you're watching or listening, tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. See you next time.